0: Chapter 25. I don't have any announcements to give unless you do. Does anybody have an announcement? Feel free right now to say something. Seth. Uh, I have a... the word. I want this on. Is this being recorded right now? Very good. Please do. Okay. Um, before I read the Gospel of Matthew portion, I just want to say there are some key verses in the book of Matthew that I would want to bring to your attention, just to highlight what I think are some very important verses. Not that any scriptures are not important, but there are some definitely that I think we need to highlight. I would say one of the most important verses in the Bible for us as Christians, as a wonderful exhortation, is what verse in Matthew? Matthew 6, 4. Close. The right chapter. What? Want to quote it? Seek ye first That's it. 53. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. If we lived that verse, our lives would be amazingly glorifying to God. Seek ye first. That's Jesus' words. Here are some others popular verses as well. Judge not that you be not judged. 7.1 11.28 Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. 6.18, 6.18, I will build My church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. 18.3, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. 18.20, For where two or three are gathered together in My name, there am I in the midst of them. 23.37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem stone is the prophets and killest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth chickens under her wings, and you would not. Twenty five, thirty five. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And then Matthew 28, 19 and 20, a very well-known passage. Go into all the world. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now turn with me, if you would, to chapter 25 of Matthew. And we're going to read from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we sick, saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he also say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall the answer... They also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer unto them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it, with that you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. It's pretty hard to come up with a theme of the book of Matthew. In case you've thought of it, I'm going to just bypass that today. Because I don't know that you could single out one particular thing, but I would say that this is, I think, a sort of an overarching theme or teaching in the book of Matthew, And I think it's found right in the first verse of the Bible, of Matthew chapter 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to underscore especially the son of David, the son of Abraham as well. This book proves that Jesus Christ was incarnate. God became man, and as a man, He was in the Abrahamic line. But more importantly, He was in the line of David, and we will get to that in a moment. Let me highlight for you some of the ways in which the different gospel accounts um, mention certain words, key words, I think, like kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, son of David, etc., It's been asked, why are there four Gospels? This was something that the early church and some of the critics brought that up. Why four Gospels? Not Why not just one Gospel? And when you read Matthew or Mark or Luke and you compare them to one another, or John, for instance, you might find some variation. And you might say, "Well, well, there's a proof that it's contradictory, that there are contradictions in the Bible. But no, not at all. I think a great illustration of how these four books differ is highlighted by the four blind men that are brought to a circus. And they, they're they wondering about an elephant. What is an elephant like? And somehow the one that brought these four blind men got the, them the privilege to be able to go up. They couldn't see, obviously. They were blind, but they had the privilege of being able to touch the elephant. And one of the blind men touched the trunk of the elephant and grabbed it and he said, this being is like a thick snake. Another one came up, grabbed its legs and said, this elephant is like a pillar, like a tree trunk. The third blind man put his hand upon the side of the elephant and said, he's like a wall. And then the fourth one grabbed the tail and said, he's like a rope. Which one was right? They were all right, they just had different vantage points of description that gave, in essence, the completeness of this creature in their mind. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have their God-given perspective on the life, teachings, miracles, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. Though they vary, they do not contradict one another. Listen up to some of these statistics. The word kingdom of heaven. If you're ever going to quote a Bible with the word kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, keep in mind it's only in Matthew that the expression kingdom of heaven appears. Verily, verily I say unto thee, except a man be born again, again he cannot see the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven. It's always kingdom of God everywhere else except the gospel of Matthew. Matthew has recorded 33 different times, which I get, again, I think, is another indication of what might be underlying Matthew's Gospel, and that is the kingship of the Lord Jesus, a kingship that has that reigned from heaven above upon the earth. The expression kingdom of God, for instance, in Mark, is 15 times, Luke is 32 times, the Gospel of John, two times, and in Matthew, just four times. So out of the 37 references to kingdom of God or heaven, Matthew has 33 kingdom of heaven and only four times kingdom of God. The expression, son of David, in Matthew is eight times, Mark is three times, Luke is twice, and John, not at all. Again, I think another indication of a theme that is in the book of Matthew. The kingship of Jesus, the kingdom, and there's 60 quotes of the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Verses Mark has 31 Old Testament quotes, Luke 26 and John 16. So the Gospel of Matthew has almost as many Old Testament quotes as all the other three Gospels do together. Why are there so many quotes from the Old Testament? Because of the audience that was being addressed in the Gospel of Matthew. And that audience was primarily a Jewish audience. The Gospel of Matthew begins, as I said, with Jesus being described as the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David. Eight times referred to. When the wise men come from the east, they see a star and they arrive in Jerusalem. What did they say? Where is he that is born what? King of the Jews. No one's born a king. You have to become one in time. But this one is described as one born King of the Jews. When Jesus was on the cross, Matthew records that the superscription that was written above His head was, that it was what? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, the Gospel begins with the powerful introduction of John the Baptist. And his words are what? His first words are, Repent! For the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven rather, is at hand, or has drawn near. Jesus' first words in Matthew chapter 4 of his teachings that are recorded says, His first words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repentance is key in the kerygma of the New Testament. How often do we hear repentance preached from the pulpit? on the radio, on TV, by the evangelists of today. Why is repentance missing? It's so key in the Bible, it's unavoidable. You can't miss it. John shouts out, repent! Jesus says, repent! Today there's a widespread shift from guilt and sin. Therefore, Christ's death has no relevance, someone says. If people don't feel threatened by the judgment on some level, it is a sign that they are dangerously desensitized. Dangerously desensitized. If they don't feel guilt or sin, what value is the cross? Tell me. To that person, zero. No relevance whatsoever. That's why we have to preach repentance towards God. Paul, when he spoke to Agrippa, was it Felix? Rather, preached him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. John the Baptist says that the root that the axe is being laid to the root. Jesus is saying that the chaff is being ready to be burnt up. The wheat are going to be gathered in the storehouses. The claims of being a descendant of Abraham are inadequate. He's separating the wheat from the chaff, the wheat from the tares, the good trees from the corrupt trees, the good ground hearers from the bad ground hearers, the light from the dark. He's calling the poor, the meek, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the merciful, the mournful those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's looking for faith on this earth, then and now. He finds the sick, the publicans, the prostitutes, and even the little children and he says, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Surprise, surprise to the scribes and Pharisees that the Prostitutes, the whoremongers, the publicans, the tax gatherers that were viewed as wicked men, Jesus says will enter into the kingdom before you. The professing children of the kingdom are cast into outer darkness. How many of you watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday? Anybody watch it? Just a few handfuls? Very interesting. I I I like watching horses anyway, but I love to watch them race. I think it's so cool. And what's the coolest thing maybe about the Kentucky Derby or some of those races is the names of the horses. I get a kick out of the various names that they have. They're wild. I don't even know why they're allowed to have a phrase for every one of these horses' names. But anyway, they're given phrases or names for these horses. And as you know, if you watched it, that the the fastest horse won by a length and a half, uh, easily won the race, but was, at the at the termination of the race, they have the unofficial winner. And then there was a pause, because the judges have to review the race, and if they reviewed the race, they had to determine whether or not the winner had broken a rule that would have affected the outcome of the victory. It took them, and there's 150 some odd thousand people in the audience. Of course, when the winner crosses, and he was a 4 to 1 odds winner, he was expected to win. And by the way, there would have been millions of dollars here at stake for who wins the race. And this horse was expected to win, and I'm sure many had put their money down on him. I'm not advocating gambling, but I'm just saying there was a lot at stake. When he crossed the line, the crowd went burst out with enthusiasm galore. But then it's posted, of course, temporarily, that he's the unofficial winner. And that stayed up on the board for close to a half an hour, and there was a murmuring in the crowd like, what's the problem? And word began to spread that there was a possible violation on the part of the jockey who brought the horse across into the next lane, blocked out another horse or two that affected possibly the outcome of the victory. Well, finally, the word was given and the jockey, that horse, was disqualified from winning the kentucky derby the biggest horse race in the whole of the year the crowd booed endlessly over the outcome because it was obvious the one that crossed the line first as everybody watched was the fastest horse on the track but the horse was disqualified you know we're all in a race too we're running the race we're on a journey we're heading somewhere We're heading to the end of our lives, but beyond that, we're even heading to something far more important, and that will be the Judgment Day. That's my theme this morning, the Judgment Day. And what is the criteria? In Matthew 25, where we were reading, it says, "...the Son of Man will sit upon His throne of glory." Wow! When He came the first time, He sat on a donkey... He was a nobody in the eyes of lots of people. He was that poor peasant man from Nazareth, a despised place, Galilee. But when he comes a second time, he's going to come in a glorious fashion. He's going to sit in a place where all eyes will see him. As a matter of fact, this throne of glory is really the great white throne. It's all the nations of people will be gathered to him. We must all give account of God. That will be the judgment day. Jesus says all judgment has been given to the Son. And the Son will be sitting, as He says, in the days of the regeneration of the Son of Man, when the Son sits on His throne of glory. Throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered unto it. You'll be one of the ones that will be there, and I'll be one of the ones that will be there. We're not gonna miss out on this judgment day. And there are two classes of people that are given titles of either a sheep or a goat. To the sheep, he separates them on his right side. To the goats, he separates them and puts them on the left side. If today was judgment day, or the day in the future it will be judgment day, how will you fare in that day? Will you be able to stand boldly or will you be shaking in your boots? Some of you that might be getting close to the end of your college year uh, are worried maybe about the finals. Maybe you've taken a test lately and you're worried about the outcome of the test. Or if you're maybe thinking about college and you've taken college boards, you're anxious about the results of those boards. I remember I was playing sports and I was... uh, trying out for the varsity basketball team. I was just a sophomore. And uh, I gave it my best during the tryouts for a week or so. And the coach said, Tomorrow morning, all the names of the players that made the team will be posted on the bulletin board at the entrance of the gym. Well, I couldn't sleep the night before. I was very shaky about going into the gym. And to have to look at the list, I didn't even want to bring anybody with me in case I did get cut. I was uh, nervous about it. Um, In case you're wondering, I did make the team. But uh, uh, ah, what a relief it was to see my name there. But prior to that, I was uncertain. Was I good enough? Did I satisfy the coach's desire for what he's looking for in talent, in skill, in ability? How about those of you that have gone to the doctors? And you've gone through the test. You've taken the exam. You've had the x-rays and so on, the different whatever's, and now you're waiting for a report, a phone call or something in the mail that's going to inform you how it all turned out. There's definitely some tensions there, are there not? Maybe you've taken a driver's test lately or going to take a driver's test, I should say, and you're not sure how that's going to come out. Even while you're driving along, you wonder, is the the tester going to approve of the way you drove that vehicle or not? What kind of confidence do we have? You know, for a real believer, it's sort of like... We should have boldness, should we not? The Bible says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Can you imagine an Italian who is applying to become a member of the Italian club? He's a shoe and he's Italian. He's got it. It's in his bones. He's he's born Italian and he's entitled to it. That's how we can feel. Or how about a ticket holder getting into the theater? We know we can pass through because we got the ticket in our hands. Or the presentation of the will to the judge with your name on it that guarantees you the right of inheritance. That's the kind of confidence we want to have. But I want to look with you at Matthew 25's criteria. This chapter has been, I think, exaggerated and used wrongly in some circles to make it appear that if you're not feeding the hungry, if you're not giving drink to the thirsty, if you're not uh, taking in the stranger, if you're not clothing the naked, if you're not visiting the sick and those that are in prison, then you're a goat and you're going to be the le- on the left-hand side. It sure appears to be that way, doesn't it? It is a criteria. Jesus says that. If you've done this to one of these, you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Brethren. From this judgment scene, it seems like that all you have to do is love your neighbor as yourself. That's basically what it's indicating. Loving your neighbor as yourself. We'll get to who my brethren are, but loving your neighbor as yourself is certainly undergirding, I think, the thoughts here. But what does Jesus mean by me when he says... He that has done this to the least of these, my brethren, have done it unto me. If you don't see this part of it, you're only going to see the criteria for judgment as being those who engage in humanitarian aid. Those are the ones that think they're going to pass with flying colors. Yes, I helped the poor. I gave money. I gave clothes to those that were in need. I, I, uh, I gave drink to the thirsty. I visited the sick and those that were in prison. I took in the stranger. All very commendable things, of course. Very humanitarian, you could say. And it almost appears to be, well, that's all you have to do is to get into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says, those who are being ministered to to, are those who are me. Jesus calls them me. If you've done it to them, you've done it to me. What a bond there must be between these people in Christ. Who has that kind of relationship with Jesus? That they can be classified as being Jesus. Didn't Jesus say, he that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that despises you despises me? Luke 10.16. So there's a one-on-one identification of us to Jesus and Jesus to us. What intimacy we have with the Lord that He would go so far to call us Himself. Wow, that's a strong bond. What do we do for Jesus? The least of these, my brethren, you have done it for me. Remember when Jesus was in a crowded area in a home and uh, His family members wanted to come in. They weren't able even to get through the crowd. And word came to Jesus and said that your uh, family members, your brothers and sisters and, uh, are out there waiting. They want to meet with you, want to talk with you. And what did Jesus say? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Those who do the will of my Father. That's who my mother is, my brother is, and my sister is. See, Jesus is not the, doesn't have the whole family of the globe as His children, as His family members, but only those that have done the will of their Father, which is in heaven. And what is the will of the Father in heaven? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that belief has some, you could say, uh, energy within it. It's productive. It's, uh, it has impact not only on your life, but in the way in which you live it before others. They see that. They get the impact as well. In 10.41, Jesus says, "...he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward." So the righteous man, the Lord Jesus, has preached to us. We have received Him. We have received His message and therefore we receive His reward. Enter thou into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, Matthew 25 is definitely one of the most extensive portions, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, that gives us... How many verses were there? 15 verses or so. 16 verses that gives us Judgment final scene on earth when the Lord sits as the King on the throne of glory and all the nations now that's unimaginable isn't it all nations of all times every kindred, tongue, little babies those that died in the womb every human being that's ever been created are all going to be at this scene Obviously, heaven and Earth will have to have passed away, because it tells us in, in Revelation 20 that when the Lord Jesus returned, that there's going to be a, you could say, a new pedestal for all of humanity to be able to stand before him. We can't fathom it, I agree, for sure. But let's look at some other judgment scenes in the Gospel of Matthew so that we don't single out Matthew chapter 25 and say, this is how the judgment seat is going to be uh, conducted, and these are the standards or the criteria that the Lord is going to judge us by, by how we treated other people. That is one, for sure. We can't deny it. Because to one he says, because of this, enter ye into the kingdom. To the others, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. And it is a good way of us examining ourselves. How selfish, how self-centered are we? How gracious, how considerate, how altruistic are we? Do we think of others in their concerns, and their needs? Are we willing to sacrifice our time, our money, our talents, our energies for helping somebody? And we're talking particularly about the family of Jesus. That's not to say that we don't help all mankind. Galatians 6.10 says, Let us do good unto all men, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith. That's my number one obligation. Just like my number one obligation and yours as a parent is to your own children. Not to other parents' children, but to your own. Charity has to begin in the home, as it's been said, rightfully so. That's primary But let's look for a moment at some of the other judgment scenes in the Gospel of Matthew so that we can get the big picture. And I think this is key in the Gospel of of Matthew. That Matthew introduces Jesus and he tells us that He's of the Son of David. He's obviously very much at the beginning established to be the King of the Jews who's talking about a kingdom present, but primarily maybe in Matthew, future, that coming kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's something that's future. In Matthew 25 talks about this kingdom of heaven. The rich man that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. Don't you wish more people would come up with a question like that and ask us as believers, what do I have to do to have eternal life? to gain eternal life? What would you say to them? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but that's an important question. And that's one of the judgment scenes that I would like to refer to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus conclude by saying, those who forsake houses and lands... And brothers and sisters and mothers for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold in this world and inherit everlasting life. A willingness to forsake those things that we hold to be the precious, and they are, but if we make them more precious than Christ, like Jesus says, he that loveth me, uh, he, that, he that hateth not his father or his mother, in place, and doesn't love me, He's he's abandoned. He, he's not going to be my child. The Lord expects us to take up our, His cross and to follow Him at the expense of loving Him more than any other tie that we may have to any other human being here on earth. He has to be first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Who is the first? The Lord Jesus Christ seeking Him. In Matthew 21, the parable of the vineyard, after the, the owner of the property sends various representatives and finally he sends his son, he says, perhaps they will reverence my son. You would think that when Jesus came into the world, they would say, hallelujah, He has arrived, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Creator of the universe. The One who created me in my mother's womb. He came into the world. You would think that the world would rejoice. But the Scripture tells us He came unto His own people and they received Him not. He was in the world and the, and the world did not know Him. He was despised, rejected of men. Unacceptable by human standards as far as they were concerned. But the cry goes out, I'm going to send My Son if perhaps they might reverence Him. But then when they see the Son, they said, hey, here's the Son. Let us seize upon His property. Let us kill Him. And that's exactly what mankind did. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the outcome? What shall I do? It says He will miserably destroy those wicked men. So what is the criteria there? What think ye of Christ? What does Jesus mean to you? Do you reverence Him? Do you love Him? Do you love Him who loved you and gave Himself on the cross to die as a sinner in the place of you so that your sins could be removed? Yes, Jesus was made sin. The Son of God. Do you love Him? Will you reverence Him? If you do, you're not going to be in that company of those that will be miserably destroyed. then in the parable of the wedding feast. Got to cut this a little bit short so I don't run out of time. But there's one that enters in and it said to him, How did you get in here without what? A wedding garment. A wedding garment. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? A garment clothing us. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the fig leaves weren't sufficient to take care of their sins, but God clothed them with the coat of the skin of an animal that was slain. Are you covered by the coat of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? That's the criteria. Praise God that we can be able to wear a garment. There. Clothed. In wedding gifts, we're expected to wear a wedding garment suitable for the wedding festivities. You can't get in without one. In the parable, Jesus describes the one who happens to get in there. How did you get in? And the Bible says he was silent. He didn't have an answer. No one will have an answer why they should get into heaven that will be satisfactory unless they can say, because of the Lamb of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Think about it. Are you heaven bound or are you hell bound? What think ye of Jesus? Do you have His garment upon you? Are you clothed? The five wise and the five foolish. They're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And they heard it, the cry at midnight, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Trim your lamps and be ready. But who were the ones that had been? Only the ones that had what in their lamps? Oil in their lamps. What does oil represent? The Spirit of God. Romans 8, 8 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The wise are the ones that have the oil. Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you? That's the claim that God has upon you. You are the seal. That that Spirit is the seal upon you of the assurance that you belong to Him. It says in 1 John 5, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Rather, that's Romans chapter 8. and verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Do you have any doubts about your salvation? If you have the Spirit, you need to be praying. Holy Spirit, turn up the volume. Give me assurance. Strip me of my doubts, of my lack of assurance. Strip away from me any of those things that are creating in me an uncertainty that I will be able to stand before this Holy Lord God. Then the 12th chapter, we have that the men of Nineveh shall rise up with this generation and shall condemn it because of what? They repented at the preaching of Jonah, but are greater than Jonah is here. Have you repented because of Christ and towards Him for your sins? The men of Nineveh will judge you in that day. They'll be shearing in the guilt that will be put upon you because they... Repented at Jonah's preaching in a far greater than Jonah has come and we don't repent? That's lacking. In the 25th chapter, we have the unprofitable servant cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Who's this unprofitable servant? The one that, remember, has the talent there's ones that get five, ones that get two, one that gets one. And one of them takes this talent, wraps it up in the napkin, and does nothing with it. And when the Lord appears and speaks, He says, I knew you to be an austere or a hard man. You know, what, what do we think of Jesus? Who is He? The Catholics think because Jesus is supposed to be an austere man, it's a lot easier to go through the Virgin Mary, the woman, as an intercessor. That's fallacy. That's heresy, I, I would say, uh, to, to think that way. It, women are wonderful and they have a kind heart. And uh, Bathsheba was able to go to Solomon on the behalf of her son. I understand that, but this is what, not what we're talking about. Jesus, when you have a relationship with Him, it changes our concept of who He is. And we love Him. And we have a relationship to Him. Other passages in Matthew. And the reason why I'm giving you all of this information is because so that we do not exaggerate Matthew 25 to the point to, as if that's the, the final say on what is the criteria for the judgment. Because what I just gave to you so far and listen to some other ones. Jesus says, unless you be converted or changed like little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it's necessary that someone be converted, have a transformation. Chapter 7, 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me, you work iniquity. Because why? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but only those who do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Chapter 12, 36 and 37. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Words out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. What words can we say that would justify us? If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. I'm justified by confessing Jesus as Lord. That God raised Him from the dead. uh, 12.37-32, Jesus says, If you do not confess Me before men, I will not confess you before My Father. We should be confessing Jesus Lord. We should be like Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ for it is the power of god unto salvation to everyone that believes are we ashamed of the lord jesus jesus says in matthew 5:39 if thy 29 if thy right hand offend thee cut it off and cast it from thee for it is proper for thee that one of thy members should be cut off rather than thy whole body be cast into hell these are some of the criteria that the lord jesus refers to 18:34 and 35 if you don't forgive others for their sins against you. Neither will your Father in Heaven forgive you. Wow. That's serious. That's serious. If you have no forgiveness in your heart towards anybody, and am not saying that you can always issue it. That would be a whole other sermon. Can we issue forgiveness to the person that has no repentance, no remorse, doesn't care a thing about what harm they've done to you? You can have forgiveness in your heart. It's like you have a check, but you're not handing it over because they don't want to receive it. They don't have an attitude that they were willing to to take take it. But especially when a brother or sister comes to us that asks for forgiveness and we hold it against them, I question whether you're saved or not. Matter of fact, the Bible says if you don't have forgiveness, then you if you can't forgive others, then you don't have forgiveness for yourself. Forgive one another as God also for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That's one of the proofs I'm a child of God. Because I value that my sins have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus. And in turn, I can go to someone else and forgive them for their trespasses against me as well. Jesus said, enter in at the straight gate. Why does the gate broads the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat? So there's an expectation that we go through the straight gate. Chapter thirteen, the good seed, when it's sown, where does it fall? On good ground. Are we a good ground hearer? Have we received the gospel? Received with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Are we a recipient of the word of God? What kind of a ground here are we? Listen to what Jesus says in one of the Beatitudes, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, rather. He says, if you call your brother Raka, you are in danger of hell fire. Calling a brother a fool, a worthless one. That's what it really means. Like, maybe society would use the word like they're a piece of garbage. They're worthless. That's not... That shouldn't be an attitude we take towards anybody. If you do, Jesus said, you're in danger of hell fire. Now, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. They're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I've given you a lot of reasons why people should be in heaven or why they shouldn't be with the Lord in the kingdom or in the eternal life age. We have a kind of a misconception about heaven. We think heaven is up there with angels flying around and it's going to be all beautiful up there. And we don't understand the economical side of how God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And that will be the ultimate domain for the people of God. And the lake of fire will be the ultimate domain for the Christ rejected. The judgment day. What is the criteria? You've heard a whole bunch of them. But let me close by referring to one that I think is an important one. Do you have oil in the lamp? Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you? The simple song that the children sing is worthy for us to close this message with. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. And we've got the oil, brothers and sisters, if you're a child of God. Give me oil in my lamp. Keep me burning, burning, burning till the break of day. We have an endless supply of the Spirit. Not merely just to live the life, which we do, it's like fuel in the in the tank of a car car can't run without fuel right a christian a person can't live the christian life unless they've got the ingredients of the spirit as fuel in them to be able to energize them to live the life it used to scare me when I first started reading the Bible and I says, man, those things are serious. I can't live like that. That's out of my league. I mean, I'm 23 years old. I'm, I'm eating, drinking, being merry and I'm expected to forsake my father, mother and, and all of these kinds of things. I'm like, whoa! How's that possible? But when the Lord turned my heart to Him and saved my soul, I found a world of difference. My whole outlook was changed in the power that you got and I got when we got saved, like Jesus says, unless you be converted and become like little children, when that conversion, that transformation takes place, it's all of a sudden like, wow, I'm living in another planet. I'm living in a different way. I have a new life. I see things differently. I don't want to give you the conception that we're way, way overboard ascetics or monastic people or that we're out of this worldliness ways. Yes, our our feet are on the ground, no doubt about it. But we got new glasses on. We say things differently. So brothers and sisters, be sure. This is something you don't want to be mistaken about. That you've got oil in the lamp. And you know how you can know you have the oil in your lamp? Because it. it keeps burning and burning and burning and burning and burning. The fuel of the Spirit is endless supply that we can always utilize. and is always there till the end. And then when we face the Lord, as John says, we can have boldness in that day because as He is, so are we. And Matthew doesn't get into all of that. That's why we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We need the epistles. We need the whole counsel of God in all of the Scriptures to give us a balanced view of our understanding of such at the Judgment Day. But I praise God, and we should be praising God, that the Judge Jesus Himself went to the cross and received the judgment for my sins. And that's why Romans says, there is therefore now no judgment to them that are in Christ Jesus. Let us close in prayer. Father, thank You for...